You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. We will be in the song that Bianca just read for us. It's uh, Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. As you're turning there, uh, if you're new, uh, welcome. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. Uh, And if you're watching online, wherever you are, thanks for joining us for worship. Uh, If you're new, we we are just especially glad that you are here. Uh, We love Jesus, and we've been praying uh, for you, Um, whoever you are. We might not know your names, but we're really grateful that you're with us this morning. Uh, We are, as uh, Christians around the world are, in a season of Advent. Uh, Advent's something that we do here at Citizens Church, but it's not just something that our church does. It's something that Christians all around the world uh, gather around and, uh, and celebrate in this season, remember this season, orient our hearts around in this season. And Advent is a Latin word that just means arrival. And so here's what this whole season is about. It's not just about Christmas. It's about reminding uh, our hearts that we are an in-between people meaning we live our lives in between the two arrivals of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, We look back with faith that Jesus came and died and rose and ascended, and we look forward with hope that he will one day return and make everything sad and true and make everything right again. And so this time of year, we consider what that means. And at Citizens, we are especially considering what are the unique things that mark the life of an in-between people. Um, Because Jesus died and rose and ascended, and because Jesus will one day come again, and we are in between those two arrivals of Jesus, there should be things, distinct things that mark the life of a person who believes that that's where they are in redemptive history. And so one of the answers is grace. The life should be marked by grace, and that's what we looked at last week, and John led us this morning. Our answer is worship. That as a people who live in between the advents of Jesus, our lives should be marked by worship, but not just worship, specifically what we'll lean into this morning is that there are truths that if we will let them, and we play a part in this, but there are truths that if we let them, they can stir the soul of the Christian to sing even when it doesn't make sense to sing. One of my favorite books that I talk about often is a book uh, by Corey Tinboom called The Hiding Place. Have you read it? It's wonderful. Corey, her story is um, her family were hiding uh, Jewish men and women uh, during the Holocaust in World War II. And they, got, they were in Holland, and they got caught and arrested. And Corey and her sister, Betsy, uh, were shipped around from prison to prison during that time before uh, eventually being released. And so in her book, The Hiding Place, she writes about her story, and she writes about the horror of it and the faith of it and her resilient hope in God in the midst of it. And what I love about the book is um, you can read it over and over and over again and catch things you missed the first time because it's just so full of these really special, sacred, important uh, moments. And one of those uh, is a really short scene in the book. It's just a paragraph on the page. But Corey and her sister are being transferred from a prison to a concentration camp in the heart of Germany. The concentration camp is called Ravensbrück. It was a women's extermination camp, hell on earth. And there had been hope that they were being released, and instead of going home, they went further into Germany, into this concentration camp, and it would be, end up being the worst part of an already terrible story. They'd been on a train for days, and then they walked for miles, and they get to the concentration camp, and the guards stopped them before letting them enter into the camp, and they realized that before going to the camp, they were going to be forced 
to sleep on the ground. It was nighttime, it was pitch black, and I want to read from the book. We stood about, uncertain what to do. Whether a new group of prisoners had arrived or what the reason was for driving us from the tent, no one knew. Women began spreading their blankets on the hard cinder ground. Slowly it dawned on Betsy and me, Betsy's her sister, that we were to spend the night here where we stood. We laid my blanket on the ground, stretched out side by side, and pulled hers over ours. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Betsy's sweet soprano was picked up by voices all around us. Lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I'm far from home. Lead thou me on. Those are lyrics to a hymn. These women, they laid down to sleep outside of the concentration camp. On the ground, in the dark, these women who had been through so much evil with more to come, and Corey's sister starts singing a song, and then others join in. The hymn is called Lead Kindly Light. It was written by a Catholic poet named John Newman in 1833, and and we need the full lyrics to understand what was happening in this scene. It goes like this. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. Lead thou me on. Can you imagine? Like like really, um, to be a spectator in that field on that night, the ground is covered in exhausted, tormented people. They were forced to go somewhere they did not want to go, guards and guns and oppression all around, and everyone lays down and it's silent, and then a voice breaks the silence. Lead kindly light amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. And then other voices, they refuse to let her sing alone. They join in. The night is dark and I'm far from home. Lead thou me on. And this ground of exhausted women becomes a chorus of worshipers. Like just for a moment, this concentration camp becomes church for these faithful women. And what makes it so remarkable, guys, like, like if you had heard someone singing that song on a Sunday morning in a church building when nothing crazy is going on, it's true, but it's unremarkable. What makes it unremarkable is everything around them says it doesn't make sense to sing. It makes sense to grumble. It makes sense to cry. It makes sense to freak out. It makes sense to scream profanity and lash out against all that's wrong. What doesn't make sense is a song of trust. What doesn't make sense is for prisoners to become worshipers. The circumstances just call for something different than that, unless, unless there are truths so deep and rich and beautiful that they are worth singing about even when it seems the circumstances call for something else. The night is dark and I'm far from home. For these women, that's true. But in their singing, what they're saying is, I am far from home. God is not far from me. Lead thou me on. And it doesn't seem to make sense to sing because of all that's going on around me, but I believe in a God that is bigger and greater than just what's going on around me. And in every circumstance, including this one, there are truths so true they can stir my soul to sing, even when it seems like it doesn't make sense to sing. And I just think that is one of the most beautiful, compelling pictures of Advent faith there is. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, we get that kind of scene with Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's singing a song in this. Uh, Your Bible probably says something right before 46. It says like Mary's song of praise. It might have a, a title over the song. 
that says the Magnificat. That's just the Latin word for my soul magnifies the Lord. And what's happening here is the backstory is just a few days before Mary sings this song. An angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, you're going to be the Messiah's mom, Mary. And so he tells her that. And then she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house. She takes a four-day trip there. They talk, and then Mary opens her mouth, and she sings these words, my soul magnifies the Lord. And it's a moment of worship where her circumstances could have easily called for something else. It's a moment where she's singing, when singing doesn't seem to make sense. Let me explain. Most scholars, when this happens, at this point in Mary's life, they have her age somewhere between 13 and 16. So let's call her 15. She's so young. She's a kid. She's a teenager. Do you remember you at 15? Like, if you're in the room right now and you're 15, you're wonderful. You're doing great. But for those of us that are like my age, when we think about us at 15, I just wasn't quite ready for anything in life, much less something this heavy in life. She's so young, so vulnerable, so many experiences she hadn't had, so much left to learn, right? But not only that, she uh, is from a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth is a poor town. It's mostly a couple hundred religious people. The main thing going on there are farms and vineyards. So Mary is a poor, lower-class, 15-year-old girl living in a poor town. She's engaged to a carpenter named Joseph, who's likely five to ten years older than her. And as an engaged couple in that culture, they are legally married. The only thing they are missing is a ceremony. And probably the only reason they're waiting for the ceremony is because Joseph is spending time building a room onto his parents' house so that when he and Mary get married, they could move in with Joseph's family, which I'm sure Mary was thrilled about. So she lives in Galilee at this time, which is a region in Israel, and all Israel is under Roman occupation. They are an occupied people in their own country. A guy named Herod the Great is Rome's appointed king of Israel. They called him the king of the Jews. And he is a violent, unstable, power-hungry tyrant. He has a reputation for unleashing his soldiers on anyone who poses a threat to his throne. In fact, at the end of his life, there's a long list of people that he had executed because he felt threatened by them. And on that list are a few of his own wives and a few of his own sons. He was the worst. So when the angel comes to Mary, Mary, you found favor with God. You'll conceive and you'll bear a son, God's son, the Messiah of his kingdom. There'll be no end. In that moment, the circumstances of her life... She is an unwed, pregnant 15-year-old, engaged to a man who knew the baby was not his. In fact, Matthew tells us that Joseph's plan is to divorce Mary quietly before the angel comes and, and, and validates her story. And she's living in a small religious town who would not buy the Immaculate Conception story. Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament scholar. He wrote a wonderful book on Mary, and he lists a bunch of realities for Mary around this time that were facing her as an unwed, pregnant teenager. Uh, the community was going to taunt and ostracize her son. Her son would be called illegitimate. Uh, she knew Joseph's reputation would be jeopardized. He would be legally required to divorce her. He could leave her stranded with the Messiah to be without a father. Worst case scenario, she is accused of adultery and excommunicated or worse. And she is carrying the king in her belly in a country where the current king had a zero-tolerance policy for any other kingly claims. She is months away from having to flee her home while Herod commits infanticide in Bethlehem because he heard that's where Mary's son was born. 
And here's how McKnight says it. No sane, intelligent, pious young Jewish woman, which Mary was all of and more, could avoid thinking these very things about herself and Joseph when the angel delivers the news. She must have wondered if there was an easier way. Imagine the questions she's asking. What's going to happen to my marriage? How will I make it if we don't make it? How will my hometown respond? Will I have to leave the only thing I know? How will we survive if I'm hunted by a tyrant? I already have so little. How can I lose even more? And with all of that swirling around in her heart and in her mind, in these verses, she opens her mouth and sings. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She sings when it seems like it doesn't make sense. The circumstances call for more fear or more questions or demanding of God that he send another angel or more doubt. All of that makes sense unless, unless there are truths so deep and beautiful, things that are so true that they stir the soul to sing at all times. And that's what Mary does. What I'm hopeful for this morning, friends, for us to hear, maybe for the first time, for most of us probably to remember, to hear again, that as an Advent people, as an in-between people, this kind of worship is available to us. It's actually necessary for us. It's an essential part of living in the waiting, of being an in-between people, looking back and looking forward. It's an essential part of our hearts being formed and shaped into Christ-likeness. And look, I know the circumstances of our life are different. No one is outside of a concentration camp right now. No one in the room is pregnant with Jesus and hunted by a tyrant. But because we are an in-between people, because we are a people that are waiting, looking back at what God has done, and God has done so much, but also looking forward, waiting for him to come again, and knowing that we're living in a world where there is so much that's still so wrong, so much that we're waiting for him to make right. And so for many of us, if not all of us, we could right now, point to circumstances in our life that call for something other than worship, something going on that could silence us, something we could point at and say, I can't worship with that in my life. Now's not the time to sing. Some of us could point to some sort of relationship that's falling apart or it's strained or there's conflict or it's, it's over. And you'd say it like this, you know, my marriage is not in a good place. I don't know if we're going to make it. Uh, I'm not in a good place with my parents. Things are really difficult there. I'm not in a good place with my children. You know, we don't have the relationship that I really hoped that we would have. And so there's some relational pain. And and when there's that kind of relational pain, it has a way of just soaking up all of your thoughts and all of your emotions and all of your energy. Some of us are consumed by sin. We're consumed by some sort of habitual failure that seems to have a stronger hold on us than God. And, And we know us, and we know that we're not who we're supposed to be. We know we're not yet what we're supposed to be. And so all of this, church, right now, can feel so fraudulent. You know, the idea of worshiping and singing, it's like God knows me, and if I were to try and sing and offer my worship, God knows me too well to accept it. Surely he knows me too well to be moved by it. Some of us are suffering, and we're actively praying for some pain in our life to change. We're asking for God to take away something painful that we don't want. We're asking God to give us something good that we don't have. And the waiting is weighing on our souls. And we're discouraged, maybe even despairing. And it seems like God is silent. And so maybe we should be too. Some of us, if we're honest, we just don't care. We don't think about God that much, would be the way to say it. He's not really priority. Oh, we're busy. 
you had a busy week, it's a busy season, and this is the kind of, uh, of season where it's easy to be given over to all that we have to do and all that we have to get done, and it's a time where we're kind of taking inventory of how the year has gone, and so it's really easy for our thoughts to go towards when we get the next break, or it's really easy for our thoughts to go towards the fact that my life demands more than I actually have to give, and so all this just feels so disconnected. It doesn't really make sense to sing. It makes a lot more sense to stress right now, and all that, friends, is part of living in a world that's waiting for the second advent of King Jesus. The relationships that are falling apart, the parts of me that are full of sin, the parts of life that are full of pain, the lack I feel for what life demands, all of that is part of a life that is waiting for Jesus. And hear me, in that world, I need you to know, God's word wants you to know, in that waiting, one of the most beautiful, righteously defiant things you can do is offer your worship to God, to sing when it seems like it doesn't make sense to sing. And worship, friends, is so much more than singing. Worship is an all-of-life offering of all of our thoughts and actions in response to the love of God and the character of God. But one of the ways that we do that is through song. God uses it to form us. The passage we're in this morning is a song. It's an important one. And according to Mary, what the song does and what singing does is it reveals the soul. The, the, our ability to sing is connected to the condition of our soul. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. How do we know her soul does that? Because she's singing about it. And look, please hear this. Um, I'm not talking about being fake. I'm not talking about performing in a worship service because it makes us feel good. Uh, I'm not talking about ignoring the parts of our life that are really, really difficult I am talking about being the kind of people that can lay on the ground and confront the darkness with worship. I'm talking about being the kind of people who have the gritty faith that we see in a 15-year-old who could lose so much and be afraid of so much and who's suffering so much and still opens her mouth and rejoices in God, her Savior. It's a heart that has such a hold on these truths and truths that have such a hold on a heart that at all times we can respond and praise. We can sing when it seems like it doesn't make sense. I just want to name what those truths are. Mary names them for us. She sings them, and I want to reach into her song and point out three truths that stir her soul to sing, that if we let them, can do the same for us. On this Sunday, on this Advent season, can stir our souls to sing because they are as true for us as they are for her. I want to read her song. I'm actually going to sing it for us. Just kidding. <laughs> it says this. It's beautiful. It's so rich. She's such a um, thoughtful, faithful artist Mary is. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on, remember that phrase, we'll come back to it, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, family to family, year to year, century to century. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sends away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Who's her song about? God. And not just, uh, she's not telling stories about God necessarily, but she's singing, she's delighting in what about God? 
his character. She says he's mighty, he's holy, he's merciful, he's strong, he's compassionate. He keeps his promises, and all of that is in her song. The first thing that we see that stirs her soul to sing when it doesn't seem to make sense is the character of God, who God is, the beauty and truth and goodness and majesty and glory and might of God. About 10 years ago, it was a little more than that, 11 or 12 actually, I was applying to go on staff at the village. I really wanted the job. Loved the church, wanted to be a part of the church. And uh, I had to, as part of the application process, I had to submit character references, and, which is pretty standard. You just need someone to vouch that you are qualified for the job, that you are who you say you are. And there's a friend that I reached out to. He's a pastor. Um, and I hadn't talked to him in a while. We hadn't spent time together in a while. We had known each other years before, but he was a great guy. He was a great pastor. He was kind of well-known. And I thought a reference from him would go a long way. I, truly, I thought it would be kind of impressive if he wrote a character reference for me. And so I emailed him and I asked him, I was like, hey, will you fill this out? And he responded and he said, no. And he explained. He said, it's been a while since we've spent meaningful time together. And while I trust you'd be qualified for the job, I don't feel like I've been close enough to you recently. Like we haven't spent enough time together lately for me to speak confidently about your character. So I don't feel like I can fill out the form. And I thought, you know, I never really liked that guy. Just... <laughs> um, truly, there's something about that that I really appreciate because it, 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 it honors a reality that people can change. In proximity to someone, time with someone uh, is essential to be able to speak about their character, right? You have to be close to someone to be able to speak honestly about what's true about them. 15-year-old Mary opens her mouth and she sings and she says, God's mighty and he's holy and he's merciful and he's shown mercy to me and to all who fear him from generation to generation and the proud don't stand a chance and he's compassionate and he feeds the hungry and he doesn't forget his people and he remembers his promises. Her song is this character reference for God about her mighty, holy, merciful God and she can sing when it doesn't seem to make sense because of all that is about to change in her life, her God's gonna stay the same. And his character is unchanging. Friend, do you know a truth right now as an in-between people that can stir your soul to sing? Your God is good and he's true and he's beautiful and he's gentle and he's holy and he's mighty and he's strong. He's worthy of your worship. Now, what we learn from Mary that we need to heed is that those truths like maybe I said that and it just doesn't resonate. What we need to learn from Mary is that those truths are quick from her lips because she stayed close to her God. There was no distance. She stayed in close proximity to him. Follow me, she's remarkable. In her song, there are 27 references or parallels to the Old Testament, 27. It's a, it's, it's a 10 verse, do you know 27 verses? It's a 10-verse song, and she has 27 references to the Old Testament. Some of it is, is lifted straight from Hannah's song and for Samuel. Some of it comes from Genesis. Others of it come from the Psalms, some from Isaiah. Rebecca McLaughlin is an author and a theologian, and she wrote a brilliant, helpful book called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And she has a chapter on Mary, and she's talking about Mary's song, and she says this. It's a poignant, um, helpful line. She says, Mary's song is like a gorgeous tapestry woven from many Old Testament threads. 
meaning she took what she knew of God from different places in scripture and tied them together in a piece of art. And here's what's crazy. She doesn't own a Bible. She doesn't have access to an Old Testament. Those were scrolls that were kept in synagogues that weren't readily available to 15-year-old girls engaged to carpenters, which means if, she, if there's 27 references parallels to the Old Testament, it means that she had hidden those verses where? In her heart. She knew her Bible. And so when the angel tells her, when he come, first comes to her, she says two things, and two things only. He says, you're going to be Jesus' mom. And she says, how can it be? How can I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. And then the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. And immediately when he says that, that truth registers with what she had already hidden in her heart as true about God. And so the second thing she says is, I'm your servant. May it be to me according to your word. Scott McKnight says this about that moment. It's really helpful. Why did Mary consent to this plan? Everything going on, everything it could cost her. Why did she consent to the plan? Because she knew God. She knew from the pages of her people's history that the God of Israel was a merciful God who would look after her. She knew the stories about other women who were threatened in Jewish history, who were protected by God, women whose stories are found in the Bible, women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, because of Mary's trust in God, and in spite of all these threatening thoughts of accusation and rebuke, Mary uttered those courageous words that change history, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me according to your word. And because she knows God, she offers her obedience. Because she knows his character, she knew who he had been to other women who felt how she must have felt. And so she says, I'm your servant. And then you know what she does? I just think this is so compelling. She spends four days walking to Elizabeth's house. Think about that. It's the first century. She can't take an Uber. She's poor. She doesn't own a horse. So she walks. She had to walk to get there. And as she walks, she thinks and as she thinks, what does she think about? She thinks about her holy, mighty, merciful God. What would you think about? She doesn't brood over her fears. She doesn't obsess over the what if. She doesn't have conversations with herself that are riddled in her shame, how unfit she feels to be Jesus' mom. She doesn't get lost in any of those things. She gets lost in thought over who God is. She broods over her Bible and what God has done. And as she's walking, this is how it would have had to happen if you just follow the sequence of events. As she's walking, she begins to formulate her own song based on what she's hidden in her heart. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And maybe she puts a melody to it and maybe she works it out as she's going. But by the time she gets where she's going, she can readily sing her character reference to God because while she does not yet know fully what it's like to be unwed and pregnant and hunted and accused, she does know what it's like to trust her merciful, mighty, compassionate God. And his character stirs her soul to sing. And we can do the same. You can do the same. Um, if I can be honest, where I feel the dissonance around this um, is that too often I'm like the old friend who would say to God, I can't speak to your character because I haven't spent much time with you lately. And if my thoughts are consumed with anything, my thoughts are not consumed with God's character. They're consumed with giving over to what's wrong with me or, or what's wrong in my life or what I would change about my life or what I have to get done or what I'm afraid of or how tired I feel all the time or what others are thinking about me. And my soul is slow to be stirred by the character of God because my heart is quick to obsess over lesser things. You know it's true. You know the good news. Uh, Mary's holy, merciful, mighty, compassionate God is my God. 
Mary's holy, merciful, mighty, compassionate God is your God, the one true God. And what is also true about his character is that he's gracious. He's slow to anger. And that means that while we might be quick to forget him or slow to spend time with him, because his character is unchanging, whenever our thoughts return to him, he is just as worthy of worship and as ready as ever to receive our worship, to delight in it. Mary's soul is stirred by the character of God, and so she sings. The second thing we see is Mary's soul is stirred by God's love for her. Remember the line that we read that I asked you to remember? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. For he has looked on. It's a verb. She's singing that God has acted on her behalf. And she says, she summarizes it. If God has done anything, if I could put all of it into one action statement, God sees me. He, he looks at me. One translator says it this way, he looks with love. And Mary sings that God has looked with love upon me and it stirs her soul. Friend, do you know God sees you? He looks with love on you. And at all times, if we let it, we can lean into that truth and it would be cause of praise. Um, a couple days ago, we were driving. It was just Carrie and I and uh, our four-year-old Ayla in the back seat. And um, we pull up to a stoplight and right next to us, at the stoplight is a police officer. And from the back seat, my four-year-old says, I don't know why, but she whispered the whole thing. She says, Dad. She said, Dad, there's a police. And I said, I know. And then she says, Dad, you have to duck. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't. And she said, Dad, you have to duck before he sees you. Now, I need you to know, church, I was not doing anything illegal, and I don't, to my knowledge, have any warrants out for my arrest or anything like that. I cannot tell you why my daughter thinks I'm a criminal, but um, in her little mind, um, a police officer is looking to find you doing something wrong, and if he saw me, then he would find me doing something wrong, and I would be in trouble. So the only safe thing to do is duck. The only safe thing to do is hide to make sure he can't see and we talk about this a lot around here because I think it's important in the part of the world we live in, but it's really easy for us to think something like that about God, to assume that God looks to find wrong, that when he's looking, his eyes are looking to uh, scrutinize. And so if he's looking, he's looking to pick apart the things that are not the way it's supposed to be, or that if God looks, then he looks with regret. He's disappointed that we haven't made more of ourselves than we have. Or if he looks, he looks with disdain. I can't tell you how many of us, just pastorally speaking and as a human, how many of us, if we were to articulate our doubt as honestly as possible, it's that when God looks at me, he's disgusted by me. He, re he revolts. He sees my mess and he sees my sin and he sees my failure. And so the, the only thing I can do, the best I can tr do is duck. Just try to hide from him, try to cover my life in all of these righteous things, or try to avoid having to think about it. And to that kind of doubt, Mary would sing, that's not our God. He looks with love. She says he looks on our humble state. For her, she has in mind that everything about her life is unimpressive. So money is impressive and she's poor. Power is impressive and she's a servant. Being from a well-known family is impressive and she's from Nazareth. Societal clout is impressive and she's a 15-year-old girl. Even her name, one in five women at that time and place were named Mary. And so she's just another Mary. 
into an ordinary Mary in an ordinary place, living an ordinary, unimpressive life, God looks in love and says, I see you, Mary. I see you. Not only that, but she calls God her savior. She knew that God knew her sin. She's a theologian. She knows her Bible. She wasn't perfect. She wasn't guiltless. And yet when she approaches God, when she sings to God, she calls him my savior. I know that he looks with grace. He forgives. He's merciful. And so the God who looks in love stirs her soul to sing. God looks at you in love, friend. Um, Maybe you would say, like Mary, there's nothing about your life that's extraordinary. And that's okay. Because you know what? You can let God be extraordinary and you be overwhelmed that an extraordinary God loves you as you are. Friend, there might be things that are wrong about your life and you just don't believe that there are two things that can be true at the same time. There's no way God can see me and love me because if he sees me, he sees the worst of me. He knows the things I try to hide. He knows my sin. He knows the mess that I've made. And maybe God is like other people in my life that the closer they got, the more unlovable they found me to be. He looks with you on love. That's the good news of the gospel of Mary's son, Jesus, that he lives a perfect life, unblemished in the sight of God, dies the death you deserve to die, raises in victory over sin and death so that all who believe in him can welcome the loving eyes of our Savior on our life and know that right now he delights in you. He sees you. He looks with love on you. He isn't scrutinizing your every move. He isn't disgusted by you. And if Oh, it's a big if, but if we can let the gospel be louder than our guilt and our shame, that it can stir our soul to sing to the God who looks with love on us right now. The last thing that stirs your soul to sing is this belief that God will make everything right. You know, there are a few lines in the song that are complicated, like you could say rightly about some of these lyrics, hey, Mary, that's not true. Like, um, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart Well, it was proud people who ended up killing Mary's son. They don't seem very scattered. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Well, around the time she sings, Herod's still on the throne. He's plotting to kill her son. The mighty are on the throne. He's filled the hungry with good things. People are still starving. He's helped his servant Israel. Israel's still in captivity. What what do we make of that? Like, is Mary out of touch? Uh, Is this an example of of a lot of what we see around us of this, like, empty, hyper-spiritual Christian optimism, right? No, she's not blind to those things. It's a prophetic song. It means this. It means she is looking back at what her God has done and believing that in Jesus her God's going to do it again. He has brought the mighty down. That has happened. Remember Pharaoh. He has scattered the proud, separated them. Remember Goliath. He has filled the hungry. Remember the manna from heaven. He has done those things. And because of what God is currently doing in her, literally in her womb, she believes that in her son that God's going to do them again. And my friend, look right at me. This is the very crux of Christian hope that God has And in Jesus, God will do again. He will drive out evil. He will heal. He will restore. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus returns, all who belong to him will rise again. He will visit the world again with resurrection. And she sings, not because everything is right right now, but because everything will be made right one day. This week, um, I kept going back to a moment. Couldn't shake it. Um, that's a really sacred moment for me, and I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And it, and it holds so much of the heart of this passage and, and really what I'm hopeful for us to walk away with. I shared um, several weeks ago about the loss of one of our church members, my friend, Stephen Roundtree. Uh, Stephen, wonderful man, loved Jesus. And he fought a courageous battle against 
brain cancer, and then he went to be with Jesus on October 21st. And a few days before he passed, uh, Bleeker and I went to see him at his house. Stephen uh, would ask us and invite us to come and pray with him and sing, and we got to do that uh, often. Um, and we went uh, Monday. He passed away on a Friday. We went on Monday, and we didn't know this at the time, but it was the last time we were going to get to do that. And usually when we would go, uh, Stephen would sit on the couch, and he would sing really loud, and he would raise his arms and pray and find a way to encourage us because that's who he is and cry. And, um, but this day, this last time, he was too weak for that. He was laying in bed. Um, his life was fading. He was in a lot of pain. He was really frail. And so he mostly, the whole time we were there, just laid in bed with his eyes closed. And so we just prayed for him and sang over him. And then Bleeker sang a song that we sang every time that we were together, a song called Give Me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have this whole world. Give me Jesus. And as we sang those words, Stephen opened his eyes, and he lifted a frail arm and a shaky hand in worship, and he sang with us, give me Jesus. And it seems like it doesn't make sense to sing when you're that sick. It seems like it doesn't make sense to sing when death is that near. He didn't want that. He didn't want these things happening to him. He prayed for healing that didn't come. He got suffering that he never asked for and he didn't deserve. But he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. And he knew in ways that I may never know what it's like to hope in a God that will one day make everything right. And he knew what God had done and what God would do again in his son Jesus. And in that moment when it didn't seem to make sense, that truth stirred his soul to sing. And it opened his mouth to the truth and it lifted a shaky hand and he worshiped the God who would one day make everything sad untrue. My friend, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how you would define this season that you're living in in between the advents of Jesus. I don't know if you are enjoying all of the joy that life has to offer. I don't know if this is the worst life has ever been. But I do know this. I do know that there is a God who loves you, who sees you, who is holy and righteous and mighty, who will one day part the clouds and send his son to make everything right. And one of the things that is good for our hearts to do and that God is worthy of at all times is for us to hold on to these truths and allow them to stir our souls so that we offer praise and war against the darkness and we offer praise that minds our hearts and we sing when it seems like it doesn't make sense to sing because there is at all times a God who's worthy of our worship. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. God, the need is for you by your spirit to appropriate your word in the way that only you know this room needs. The messenger stands just really far from the message, God. So would you give us that kind of gritty faith that we see in Mary? Would these um, truths, God, that are verses on a page, would they become realities in our heart? Stirring in us. Not to pretend. Stirring in us 
not to numb, but stirring in us to sit in the waiting and sing what's true. Our hearts need it. You deserve it. Help us.